Uh, well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here today. Uh, we had uh, been a great time of worship together so far in this time and uh, last hour, just a full room, and it was great to worship. I mean, yeah, start with a uh, kind of a funny question probably to ask you on Easter Sunday, but uh, how many of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket? Wow. Good thing you guys are here today. I think you need it. It is a terrible feeling, isn't it, when you're uh, you know driving down the street and you look over and there is a police officer and you know he's got his radar gun out. You know, and what, I don't know about you, but here's my immediate reaction. The very first thing I do is, no matter what's going on, no matter how fast I'm going, I immediately take my foot off the gas pedal. You know, and then the second thing, maybe you can identify with this. You know, I, I look to see how fast was I going, and if I'm not speeding, then I'm fine. You know, and I just go right on down the street, don't think anything more about it. But you know, on the rare chance that I'm going a little faster than I'm supposed to. You know, here's, you probably do the same thing. Here's what I start doing immediately as soon as I pass him. I'm looking in the rearview mirror. I'm praying. God, please. I don't know if it's right to ask, but please. I don't need a ticket today. Can you identify with that? You know? I, I heard this book this week. There's a book called Speeding Excuses That Work. I don't know if they really work or not. You can go try to pick it up if you uh, need such a book. Uh, you know, the, several of them in there, the first few, you know, were okay. Like uh, one guy said, uh, I was speeding because I was burning the carbon off my new spark plug. Yeah, right. A uh, lady was uh, stopped for speeding. She said, I was speeding because I was almost out of gas, and so I was speeding to get to the, the gas station to get gas. Yeah, right. But here's my favorite one. Guy was pulled over for speeding. He said, no kidding, my wife is about to get pregnant, and I want to be there when it happens. Hope you make it, buddy. Thinking it's not happening without you. Well, I don't know about you, but I think we have this kind of negative perspective about God. I think sometimes we think that He is like the the policeman standing on the side of the road with his radar gun, and He is just waiting to catch us in a speed trap. Or maybe we, we think of Him like He's up above and He's got this big ticket pad, and, uh, you know, he's just waiting for us to do something wrong so he can, he can write us a ticket or he can zap us with a bolt of lightning. Our perspective of God is that he's out to get us. Or maybe, maybe your perspective of God is more that he is a parent who wants an overachiever as a child and there's nothing you can do to satisfy him. It doesn't matter how much you try, how good you are, it's never good enough. And you are always trying to do a little bit more and do a little bit more, but there seems like there's always just a few more hoops to jump through. Or maybe uh, you're, you have more of an American Idol image of God. Like he's a talent judge. You know, back when the show was in its good days and Randy, Paula, and Simon were the judges, you know. And so you're, you think, see life kind of as a performance and you're performing and you're trying to do your best and you're just hoping that when you get to the end, He's more like Paula than Simon. Now here's why all that matters. All of that matters because I think the way that we see God affects how we view all of the rest of life. That's kind of a subconscious thing. But the way we see God, the way we think about God, our perspective of God influences and affects the way that we see everything else in life. Like, how you see God determines how much you worry. How you see God determines how you respond when people let you down. How you see God determines how dependent you become on other things in life to meet needs for you. 
So how do you see God? Today I'd like to try to give us a fresh perspective about God. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, does that for us. The resurrection of Jesus changes the way that we see God, which changes the way that we live life. Now over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to talk about how to awake from worry. And we're going to talk about how to awake from addiction and to awake from betrayal. But today it begins with this important foundation. It all begins with how we see God. And so if you uh, brought your Bible or you're using an iPad or a smartphone, however you are reading the Bible, why don't you find your way to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at several verses here that I think help us to have a fresh perspective in light of the resurrection of Jesus, of who God is. Let me kind of set the background for what the writer of Romans, Paul, has written so far in this chapter. In chapter 8, he addresses the idea that there is a lot of suffering we deal with in life, and we can identify with that, can't we? There is a lot of things that we suffer, but he says in this chapter that the eternal glory that awaits us, what the changes that are going to come when Jesus returns far outweighs any suffering that we have to deal with here on earth. And he reminds us that we are saved by grace. It's not something we earn. It's not something we have to try to be good enough to get. It it is all a gift from God. We are saved by grace. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, he says this. What can we say about such wonderful things as these? And he means all the things he's been talking about in chapter 8. And then he asks this question. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Now really, more than a question, he makes a statement here. He says to us very clearly, God is for you. God is for you. (laughs) Now maybe you think, well, well, wait a minute. After the week I've had, or the month, or the year, it's really hard for me to believe that God is for me. But He is. God is for us. After Jesus' crucifixion, His horrible death on the cross that we talked about last week, His followers were left feeling like they had been abandoned. At that moment, when Jesus had died on the cross, they felt like God was not on their side. There was no sense for them that God is for us. I mean, after all, they had given their lives. They had put everything on the line to follow Jesus. And now what did they have to show for it? He was dead. He was in the tomb. And they were left alone. They were left with no hope. They were left with no future. They feared for their lives. They were left, they felt like, with nothing. For them, there was no sense that God is for us. That is, until God screamed in the loudest voice that man has ever heard. And He said, I am for you. And the way He said it is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, the first six verses. And maybe you've heard this read many times. But listen again. After the Sabbath, At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. I think they passed out. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. 
For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as He said. And with those angels' very simple words describing a profound impact, God screams, I am for you. That's the message, I think. That's part of the message of the empty tomb, is that God is for us. Suddenly, this story was for His followers was not about the fact that there was no hope. They, suddenly, they had hope. There was a future. There was nothing to fear. God screamed so clearly, I am for you. You see, this was not a story of despair. It was a story of joy. This was not a story about defeat. This is a story about victory. This is about God overcoming and God saying clearly to every one of us, I am for you. I'm for you. Now maybe as you hear that, you, you still struggle a bit to, to really receive that. You know, one of my uh, least uh, favorite places to go is to the, uh, the eye doctor, you know? Not because I'm afraid of uh, reading the eye chart, but I hate that test where they make you put your face up against that plastic thing and then they blow air in your eye. I hate that test. And, and I, so I don't like going to the eye doctor, but uh, the eye doctor and I are becoming closer these days because not only do I wear contacts, now if you come to my office and see me studying, you will find me wearing the reading glasses, you know, which I'm not very happy about, and, but uh, it's a reality. Maybe you, maybe you wear glasses. Maybe you can remember the first time you got glasses. And I, I should have asked my parents when this was for me because I can't remember. But um, I think somewhere in middle school, maybe first part of high school, well, you know, it was the first time that I went to the eye doctor and he said, Jeff, you need glasses. Uh, and maybe you remember that experience. And so at least when I was growing up, you didn't like get them the next hour. Okay, they, I don't think they had one hour of optical yet. Uh, you, you had to go back several days later. So, you know, you'd go back and the eye doctor would fit the glasses to, to fit your face. And then do you remember going outside for the first time and going, wow, I didn't realize all the things that I couldn't see. You know, that fuzzy green thing, that's a sign. Huh? Those are blades of grass. You know, all the things that suddenly you can see there is this transformation that takes place when you put those glasses on and suddenly what you could not see clearly, you can see. And there is a similar transformation that takes place in our lives when we begin to see clearly that God is for us. When we begin to see clearly that God has screamed out into our lives, I am for you. I, I'm not here for paybacks. I'm all about forgiveness. Seeing really God is, seeing God is coming to the realization that I, He is not here to hurt us. He is here to help us. Now, God is for us, but this morning maybe you think, well, that's great, but I'm not really convinced. Well, let me show you some other things in Romans chapter 8 that help to prove and to remind us that God really is for us, that He is for you. Listen to verse 32. Since God did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for His all, won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? This is a, a form of argument and logic that was used in ancient times. It was very popular. They called it arguing from the greatest to the lesser. And basically the principle was they would prove something that was greater. And once they had proved something that was greater, logically it meant whatever was lesser had to also be true. Here's how Paul uses this argument in Romans 8, verse 32. He says, If Jesus Christ 
the Son of God came to earth and He lived here on earth and then He was willing to die on the cross and then rise again from the tomb. And we would all agree that's, that's pretty difficult, right? I mean, I, most of us couldn't pull that off by ourselves. That would be the greater thing. Paul says, if that's true, if the greater thing is true, then wouldn't it also be true that God cares for you? That God wants to work in your life? That God wants to take care of you? That is much easier. Jesus has already accomplished the greater thing. We know that to be true. And so we can trust that God also wants to forgive us and take care of us. Henry Nouwen, in his book, uh, one of his books, uh, writes about uh, the Flying Rudellas, a trapeze artist couple. This isn't them. This is just a random trapeze artist couple. But uh, he interviewed them, and uh, he told him several things. Now, you know, the, the person that uh, swings back and forth on the high wire and lets go and does all the flips and stuff, that person is called the flyer. The person who keeps their knees attached to the wire that they're swinging on, they're called the catcher. And the Rodellas told him that when that person, the flyer, lets go of the trapeze and begins to do all those flips, when it's time for them to be caught, it is very important that they stay as still as possible and let the catcher do the catching. I mean, you can imagine, right? If they're flailing around while the catcher is trying to catch them, it's just a bad scene. You know, I wonder, I think of life sometimes. We feel like we have let go of the wire and we are flying through the air and we are hoping that God will catch us. But just in case He doesn't, we try to take care of it ourselves and we sort of flail around. You know what? If God sent Jesus to die on the cross and He could raise Him from the tomb, don't you think God is capable of catching us? Sometimes we need to just let Him catch us. Jesus did the hard thing. God wants to do the easy thing. Because God is for us. Listen to verse 33. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? Will God? No, He is the one who has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? Will Christ Jesus? No, for He is the one who died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God pleading for us. Now, Paul uses a a courtroom argument. He he says, if you stand before the judge, who's going to accuse you? Who's going to point the finger of accusation? Now, you know, when we think about our own lives, we can think of plenty of people probably that could accuse us, right? I mean, think back to your college days. I'm thinking there were probably some people that might be able to accuse you of some things. Or, you know, an old friend who knows some things about your past, maybe they could accuse you. Or uh, somebody who knows some about a whole different side of you. You know, one of our great accusers is our own conscience, isn't it? Our own conscience, when we do something, just keeps telling us over and over again how wrong and how terrible we are. A lot of us think that we believe the lie of Satan. Satan, who is the great accuser, lies to us to get us to believe that God wants to accuse us. But the reality is, according to what Paul says here, is God's not in the business of accusation. He's not concerned about accusing you. He wants to forgive you. Because He is for you. God is not concerned about payback. God wants to offer you forgiveness. The the penalty, the punishment for your sin, it's already been paid. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid the penalty. So God's no longer worried about accusing. He wants to forgive you. God is for you. I heard about this guy that was uh, speeding and pulled over by a police officer. The officer walks up to his window and says, Sir, you were going almost 100 miles an hour. 
guy argues, says, no way, no way I was going that fast. And so the officer kind of leans in the window to his wife and says, um, does he always you know, drive crazy like that? She says, he is out of control, always driving crazy. To which the husband kind of turns to her and goes, honey. So the officer flips open his book and starts to write him a ticket. And as he's doing so, he notices he doesn't have his seatbelt on. And so he says to the driver, sir, you're not wearing your seatbelt. And he said, well, I had it on, but when you stopped me as you were walking up, I took it off. And so the officer again leans in. He says to his wife, did he have his seatbelt on? No, he didn't have it on. He's a liar. Flies all the time. So the officer keeps writing, to which the husband then turns to his wife and says, honey, what are you doing that for? Just be quiet. Shut up, wouldn't you? To which the officer again leans in the window and says, does he always talk like that to you? To which she responds, only when he's drunk. Now that, that's good, isn't it? That's human love. And human love has this tendency to be vindictive. When we're hurt, we want to strike back at somebody, don't we? But God's love is so completely different than that. Listen to what he says in verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? Verse 37. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Am I convinced that nothing can ever separate us from His love? Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you, do you really believe that God loves you? Do you believe that He loves you for who you are right now? Not for who you might be someday. Do you believe that God loves you even when you fail? Do you believe that God loves you even in the midst of life's difficult struggles? Do you believe that God loves you even when it seems that no one else does? Do you believe this morning that nothing can separate you from God's love? It's the truth. God does love you. He does. And there is nothing that can cause Him to stop loving you. God is for you. Abby, at the beginning this morning, shared her story very courageously. And as I listened to her story, and as I watched her live out that story a few years ago, it was so clear to me as I watched that deep in Abby's life and heart, she knew that God loved her. And even though the circumstances of life for that moment were so incredibly difficult, there was this constant thing in her heart that said, God still loves you. And God is for you. And it's true for all of us. God is for you. That's the message of the empty tomb. That's the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God screamed it so clearly that morning when He brought Jesus back to His life and He said to every one of us, I am for you. And we need to come awake and see life through the lens of a God who is for us. And it's not just true collectively. It is true individually. 
it is true in your life. This is a very personal message from God. And He says to you, if He could look you right in the eye this morning, He would look you in the eye and He would say, I am for you. Would you pray with me? God, I thank You for the empty tomb. I thank You for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God, I thank You that You screamed oh so loudly on that morning, I am for You. God, help us to take that message very personally. God, help us to see You in that way. And as we see it, God, help us to see life that way. Help us to trust in You. Thank You, God, that You are for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.